Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Huh? Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are the resurrecting king. You've resurrected, Lord God, and your word tells us, Lord, that you are the resurrection and the life. Though we might die, yet we will live. Those who die will, those who live will never die. And we thank you for that, Lord God. Lord, may we be reminded that that resurrected life doesn't happen when we pass on and go to be with you in heaven or when you come to retrieve us and take us home. Resurrected life is now for all who desire, Lord God, are available. That eternal life, Lord God. And so, Father, help us to live with the eternal perspective as we'll even see this morning through your word that we are set apart. We are peculiar people. We are your special chosen tribe, nation, Lord God, that you desire to demonstrate and display your, your glory, your love, and your mercy, and your grace before uh, a world, a world that is uh, literally uh, crumbling before us, a world steeped in darkness. Uh, help us to be that light shining, Father God, that our resurrected lives, Lord, would bring honor and glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. We're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Can you bring me down just a bit? I'm kind of ringing up here. Thank you, Brandon. Um, as Pastor David said, I am the pastor of U-Turn for Christ, a ministry that the Lord used to turn my life around for many years, steeped in sin growing up in Los Angeles and a bit older than I'm sure a lot of you people that are here, as I can tell by the faces. Um, but the, the era that I grew up in, there was definitely a lot of uh, worldliness going on, and I wasn't raised in a Christian family. But the Lord used the ministry to turn my life around. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. And because of that, I stand before you, a redeemed uh, man, born again, sinner by the grace of God. Amen. The title of the message this morning is, A House Divided Will Not Stand. A House Divided Will Not Stand. Unity in the body of Christ is very important. And I was speaking with uh, Pastor David uh, earlier before service. I had the pleasure of, when he was in Williston, to come and speak there. And the Lord gave me a word for the church there. And I think this word is very much apropos for you guys. Uh, Paul founded the church in Corinth um, a year and a half. He was there. Uh, and when he left, there was a bunch of problems that came in. And as we'll see, the problems stem from division. And that's what Paul is um, focusing on here in the first couple of chapters, the vision amongst the saints. And so I believe that God wants us, as the body of Christ here at this newly formed church, to recognize and understand just how important unity is. God has called out a pastor and his family with a vision that he's given him to do a work here. And what I've learned through ministry is that God calls someone and then he raises up individuals to come around, that one that he's called out, to keep his arms lifted up, to catch that vision that God has given him to further the kingdom, because it certainly cannot be done by one individual, one family. It has to be done by the body of Christ. And so I'm hoping the word today goes forth that will encourage everyone that's here to recognize the importance 
of unity in the body of Christ, particularly in the beginning stages of a new church. Very important, very important that we submit to the spiritual authority that God has placed over us, which a lot of people struggle with. You know, we live in, a, in an age where, you know, I, mean, I got the Bible, I can read the word, and I can pray, and I don't need to submit. And, oh, I'll show up for church, and, yeah, I'll listen to a great message, but pastor, stay out of my personal business because that's none of your business. Well, that's not how church is done. God gives us spiritual authority, and so I, I'll ask you this question. If you're willing to entrust, if you will, your spiritual well-being to an individual, because that's the most important decision we'll make, amen? Why wouldn't you entrust the remainder of your life? But even more than that, to be accountable. Because we live in an age, we live in a world, we live in a time where everything that this world is about is coming against what the Lord says. And there's no such thing as a great, long, stranger Christian. If you're riding alone, you're going to get captured. That's for real. And so we need one another. And just because I'm over in Lexington doesn't mean I'm not a part of the the family, the body of Christ. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ, those of us who have been saved, blood dipped, blood washed, filled with the Holy Spirit, tongue speaking, hallelujah, Christians, amen? amen? And so we want to make sure that we understand that unity is very important, very important, because the enemy will come in to divide. And it starts at the top and works its way through the body of Christ. So a house divided will not stand. If you would, please turn to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to look at verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. And then drop down to verse 30 in the same chapter. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And then, if you would, turn over to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Again, being reminded that the theme throughout this whole teaching is about unity. Acts 2.1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. That phrase, all together, another version says, one accord. It means one accord. It means one mind. It means being like-minded. And we all know what happened on that day of Pentecost, right? When they were all together in the upper room, what happened? The Spirit of God showed up in a powerful way, right? And it moved. And it sat on each head as tongues of fire. And the Spirit of God was poured out on all flesh. And great and powerful things began to happen. When God's people are like-minded, He moves very often powerfully. Whenever you see a gathering of God's people from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and they are on one accord, like-minded. Lord, we've come to worship you. God, we've come to see you do great things. He shows up very powerfully. When Moses was given the task of making the tabernacle, and he dedicated the tabernacle, and he began to pray. And the Bible says that the Spirit of God came down like uh, like a cloud. And the cloud was so thick, his presence was so thick that the priest could not go in. Same thing when Moses, I'm sorry, when Solomon dedicated the temple. The Spirit of God came. And it was so heavy, his presence was so heavy that they could not stand. 
and then moving into the New Testament on Pentecost. You see, when God's people are together, it gives God um, uh, an absolute opportunity to move in a great way. Psalms 113 says, I'm sorry, Psalms 33 says, Behold how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like the oil, even the oil that's poured on, the, uh, on Aaron, the priest, and it runs down to his beard. In Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, the oil depicted a picture of what? The Holy Spirit. And so in that song, what it's saying is because, you know how we do it today, we, we, we anoint you with oil, right? We get the oil out and we just kind of, that's not what they did with the priest. It, they poured it on the priest. And it says it ran down his beard. And if you look further in that scripture, it says even to the hymns of his robe. And so what that's saying is, is when brothers dwell together in unity, it's like the spirit being poured out, saturating us. Amen? And so when we're together, the spirit has an opportunity to move. But know this, all it takes is just one dissenting spirit to null and void all of that. And so God is calling us to be like-minded, to be on one accord. So I'm going to give you four principles that has to do with guarding against division. And Paul thought it very much an important subject to, to talk about because he talks about it in verse 14, as we'll see. He warns, he admonishes the church in Corinth to guard against it. The first principle being remember who you are in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ. Ain't no big shots. Ain't no little eyes no big use, none of that. We're all level at the cross, amen? So that's number one. Remember who you are in Christ. Number two, live according to the word of God. God's word is very important to us. It's a light on a path and a lamp under our feet. God's word guides us and teaches us how to live. Number three, stay humble before God. Stay humble before the Lord. And then finally, number four, Keep an eternal perspective. You see, we're living in a world that's material, and we navigate, if you will, we negotiate through this world by what we can see and touch and hear through our external fleshly faculties, if you will. But there's another realm that we cannot see, but it's still there, and it's the spiritual realm. But you know what? You can tap into that just like you can tap into the world that you can see and touch. But you have to use your spiritual senses because God gives us spiritual eyes to see. God gives us spiritual ears to hear. God gives us a spirit to receive the wisdom that he wants us to have. And so we need to keep that spiritual, eternal, heavenly perspective. And if we do all four of these things, I believe we'll be well on our way to keeping together and having the unity that Christ died for. The Bible says that when Christ was crucified on the cross, the veil was torn from top to bottom. It removed that separation between man and God so that it was not only the priests that were entering in now, all of us, the Bible says in Hebrews, can come boldly to the throne of grace in a time of need, right? But you know what that, that cross did also? There was a separation between Jews and Gentiles. And the Bible says that that partition was also broken too, torn down, so that all men can now enter in to worship the Lord. And that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to have that unity for all. So those four perspectives, let's jump in. Verse 1, 
chapter 4. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of students that one be found trustworthy. But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Verse 5, therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. First thing we see here is, again, remember who you are in Christ. Going back to verse 1, Paul says, let a man regard us, let a man think of us, if you will, as what? Servants of Christ. What's the other one? Stewards. Now, that word servant is a different translation of a Greek word. It's not a bond slave that we get, the doulos. It's uh, from a Greek word that means to be an underroar. And an underroar was someone who was in a Roman ship in the belly of the ship, strapped to, if you will, an oar, and all he did was row. And there was a captain giving them instructions on when to row, how to row. They didn't know where the ship was going, when they're going to reach their destination. All they knew to do was what? To row. And so what God's saying? He's saying, you're in the, the belly of the ship. Don't worry about where I'm taking you. You just be obedient to hear the call, what the master's telling you to do, and you just do it. Doesn't matter. The other thing is steward. Now, if you would, go to Genesis chapter 39. I'm going to show you an example of what a good steward looks like. The story of Joseph, and many of us know what that story looks like. Joseph exemplified good stewardship. Genesis 39, drop down to verse 8 and 9. The steward was given charge over a man's estate. Now, look at what the scripture says about Joseph. But he refused, he being Joseph, and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with what? Anything in the house. The master had given Joseph charge over everything so he could go about his daily affairs, fully confident that Joseph was going to take care of all of his needs. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. Joseph was the epitome. He was an exemplary steward. So how does that relate to us? Going back to the scriptures. We've been given stewardship over the mysteries of God. Isn't it amazing that God has given us stewardship over the mysteries of God? Now, the Bible speaks about many mysteries of the word of God. This particular one, he's talking about the gospel. That's a mystery. It's a mystery. It's still a mystery today. How does me, believing in what some man did on a cross, have anything to do with me being forgiven? That's a mystery. Surely I have to work for it. Surely there's something that I've got to do in order to, to be worthy of that, right? No, you don't. It's a free gift, Romans says, right? If you believe and receive, it's a free gift. God has given us stewardship over something as precious as giving the word of encouragement, the word of salvation for mankind. So, Joseph was an exemplary steward. 
He says, all that the master has, he's given to me. He's given me charge over. All that the master has in regards to the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's given to us, family. Now you're going to be a good steward of it. Are you going to be a good steward of it? You see that idea of remembering who I am in Christ? Yeah, I know we've got family. We've got personal lives that we have to deal with. We're in a season to pray for the material family. we got a lot of stuff going on. My wife is not here today because she's just tired, plumb tired. She would have loved to have been here. Every time I've preached, she's gone with me. That does not take away from the fact that there's still work that we need to be doing for the Father, right? And we need to be good stewards of what God has given us. So Joseph was that definite steward who could be counted on. Now look at what verse 2 says. It says, in this case, moreover, in this case, in this case of the stewards of the mysteries of God, it says it is required that the stewards be what? Found trustworthy. That word trustworthy means to be faithful. So not only does uh, the Lord expect us to, to take charge and to, to do what he's called us to do as his stewards. He says, you need to be trusted. I need to be able to trust you. You need to be faithful to me. The idea of being faithful, being one who can be trusted by the Lord. So do you take that as a challenge? Is that something real to you? And whatever God gives you. Some of us here have been called to come alongside to help this ministry. And you know God's told you to do. Are you being faithful to heed the call and help? To be faithful. He says a steward needs to be, he requires to be faithful. And then in verse 3 and 4 it talks about this idea of living above reproach. Look at what verse 3 says. But to me it is a very small thing that I be examined. That word examined comes from a Greek word that means like a forensic kind of examination putting a whole lot of things together and, and looking at what the real truth is, to be examined by you or by anybody else, for that matter. In fact, I do not even examine myself. And here it is. Look at what it says in verse 4. For I am conscious of nothing against myself. Man, I wish I could say that. He says, I am conscious against nothing against myself. In other words, Paul says, I've lived in such a way that my life is above reproach. Now, we know Paul wasn't perfect. Because there's only one perfect man. So what's he saying? He's saying live in such a way that no one can bring to you or tell anyone else about how you're not and what you're doing that is not the truth. To live above reproach. To live in the light. To be able to live in such a way, if you will, that honors the Lord. So remember who you are. Everybody that's in the body of Christ has been given gifts, amen? And we know that, which is one of the problems with the church in Corinth. They wanted to exercise their gifts at the expense of why God gifted them to show off instead of to help build up and edify. So remember who you are in Christ. Servant, under roar, and a trusted steward. Let's go on, verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Number two, 
live according to the word of God. Look back at verse 6. It says, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. In other words, live according to the scriptures. And if we regulate our life, if we live our life according to the scriptures, then we won't have to worry about being divisive, having any divisions or schisms, because the word of God preaches about unity in the family of God. And so to live above reproach in such a way that we're living the word of God, turn to Psalms 119, if you would. Verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Verse 11. Drop down if you would, please. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. It's not what I say. It's not what Pastor David says. It's not what you say because we all have opinions. Some of them are good. Most of them aren't. It's the word of God. So are you living your life in accordance with the word of God? In every area, not picking and choosing because the word of God is not a buffet. Well, I, I like, you know, uh, steak and potatoes. I'm a steak and potatoes man, so I'm going to leave those Brussels sprouts alone. You can have the spinach. No, it's the whole counsel of God's word. Are you living it in such a way? Flip over, if you would, to Matthew Chapter 7. One of the things that I learned in the ministry of U-Turn for Christ, and U-Turn for Christ is part of Calvary Chapel, is that the Word of God is the most important tool that God has left for us, first of all, to see him because it's his revealed word of who he is, a revelation of God Almighty. The only way you get to know and see who God is is through his word. But also, it's left Behind so that we can pattern our lives behind. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27, it says, and this is Jesus speaking. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. So here the Lord is contrasting two individuals, wise and what? Foolish. He says the wise man hears his word and does it. And when he does it, he's founded his house, that foundation that's on a rock. And when all the toils and the trials and the difficulties of, of life and time come, that house is going to be able to stand. But notice what he says about the foolish man. The fool. He's built his house on what? Why? What's the sand? Of hearing God's word and what? And not living it. And so when the trials of life come and the difficulties of life, and know this family, in Christ, out of Christ, stuff happens, Right? Rich or poor, stuff happens, amen? Donald Trump or the hobo that's living out on the streets of downtown Columbia, you're going to have difficulties. But particularly for those of us who are Christians, the word of God says, in this world you must what? 
face persecution. Those who are in Christ Jesus, uh, you know, maybe every now and then you might have some persecution, right? That's not what the word says. What, what does it say? You will. It happens. But if I'm founding my life, if you will, if I'm living my life according to the word of God, I've got a rock, a foundation to stand on. So when those difficulties come, I'll be able to stand. But notice what it says at the end of chapter 27. For the house that's founded on sand, it says the house will what? Fall. But it says, notice the end of that. Great is that fall. You see, we're, we're in war. And the enemy is not coming just to, oh, let me see what I can take from him. Okay, I'll just take that and I'll be on my way. Okay, thank you. Have a nice day. Kill, still and destroy is his mission, right? And whatever he can do to, to disrupt what God is trying to do, he'll do that. So Satan doesn't work this to prosper. And what I mean by this is the planning of this church is seeing Pastor David and the family here raise up in such a way that impact not only your lives but this community and bring, bring many to, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Satan doesn't want that to happen. He's going to try to come against that. But when there's unity in the body of Christ, he has the most difficult time going on. Verse 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You already feel, you have already become rich, you have become kings without us, and indeed I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. If you notice, Paul's uh, being a little sarcastic, right? For I think God has exhibited us apostles as of all as last of all, I'm sorry, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong, you are distinguished, but we are without honor. Verse 11, to this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we, and we toil, working with our own hands, and when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world and the dreads of all things, even until now. Stay humble before the Lord. Paul gives this contrasting view, if you will, of the believers in Corinth and what a real Christian looks like, if you will. He talks about being, let's look at it again, going up to verse uh, 8. He says, you've already been filled. You've already become rich. Kings. I wish you were a king so we could reign with you. But then he uh, contrasts that to, to who they are, who he is. In verse 10 he says, we are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak, but you are strong. He says, we are without honor, but you are distinguished. We are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, we toil, that word toil means literally working to the point of exhaustion. We toil with our own hands. We are, when we are reviled, when we are blasphemed, when we are reproached, what does he say we do? We bless. We bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. That word conciliate means to reach out with kindness. When's the last time you've been slandered? And you say, oh, brother, that's all right, man, I love you. God bless you. When somebody is slandering you, 
speaking ill of you, speaking evil of you. And God forbid it be someone in your family. But Paul says when these things are occurring, we're literally turning the other cheek. We're seeking to be kind towards you, if you will. And then he says at the end of verse 13, we have become the scum, the filth of the world, the dreads or the dregs of all times, even until now. It's a different picture from what Christianity looks like today in a lot of churches, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Anyone in here ever consider themselves scum, filth? But I think Paul is teaching in hyperbole, an exaggerated sense of understanding what it means to be humble. And the church in Corinth was steeped up in pride, spiritual gifts. They were in a wealthy city. People had money, and they were all puffed up. And Paul was just reminding them, stay humble. Stay humble. Going back to verse, where am I at? Verse 9, he talks about, for I think God has exhibited us apostles as, last of all, men condemned to death. This whole idea of what Paul was saying in verse 9 was that God had humiliated the apostles publicly, the great men of God, those that the Spirit of God filled who wrote the, the New Testament. God used in mighty ways through signs and wonders. He says, we've been condemned to death. Then he goes on to talk about, in verse 9, um, because we have become a spectacle. That word spectacle means theater. And the idea was this, is that when a conquering Roman general came in from a war, he would bring his army in first. There would be a parade to congratulate him. And the first thing that would come in would be the general with his army. And the second thing would be the bounty, the booty that he got from the, uh, from the war. And then thirdly, lastly, uh, all the condemned enemy that were coming before. And they knew where they were going. They were going to be condemned to death. And so Paul is saying that the Lord has made us a spectacle before the public to humiliate and ultimately knowing that at some point in time we might die. That's what Paul is saying. To be humble, to understand that at any point in time, if God so chooses, he might want to take you home. But in the meantime, in the meantime, going back to verse 1, being what? Found what? Trustworthy? As a servant and a steward of God. Going on, verse 14, we'll close it up with this. I do, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers in Christ Jesus. For, I, for in Christ Jesus, I'm sorry, I have become your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. That word imitator means to mimic. Five, uh, I'm sorry, with this one, six different times in the New Testament scripture, Paul says to imitate me, to live like I live. And so God gives us examples. He gives us examples of how to live. He gives us examples of how not to live. And in my lifetime of, of being in ministry, I've been given three different pastors that I've served under as great examples of what to live like. But again, not putting them on a, a pedestal pedestal expecting them to be perfect because ultimately uh, we know who the perfect man is right 
the God-man, Jesus Christ. But God in our lives gives us individuals that we can model, that we can mimic, that we can pattern our lives behind. Please have somebody. Again, this is not a long stranger, long ranger destination or odyssey. In the, the real natural world of animals, of, of prey, and, and those who hunt, uh, predators, um, the longer that an individual uh, as a prey stays within a group, a herd or whatever, a flock, they're, they're more likely to be safe, right? But what does a lion do in order to get his food? He does what? He separates. And now you're on your own. So, you know, when you're at the old water hole and you're lapping and you're all into it because you're thirsty and you ain't paying attention to what's going on, and all of a sudden you're like, it's quiet. Ain't nobody, ain't nobody around me. And you look up, he's like, he here, huh? Yeah, he is. Too late. Too late. We need one another. We need, we need one another. Paul says, imitate me. For this reason, verse 17, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. He will remind you, if you will, of my ways. Paul says that we need to be reminded. That's why we do church. At you turn for Christ, we have Bible studies, or the men are in Bible study on their own or with someone teaching five, six times a day. A steady diet of God's word. And I know when men first get there, they'll be like, man, Bible study, man, Bible study. I had one guy ask me, God's my witness, when I first came out here back in 2001, why do we have so many Bible studies? You know what I told him? Uh, let me see. You uh, turn for Christ. Yeah, you turn for Christ. That's the reason why. To be reminded, need to be reminded, a steady dose, if you will, of God's word. Verse 18, now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon. For if the Lord wills, I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a gentle spirit? Here in the last section, keeping an eternal perspective will keep us from being divisive and dividing amongst ourselves. Going back up, Paul talks about being a father in verse 15. He says, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have become a father through the gospel. Paul was their spiritual papa, and he reserved the right to come to them if he needed to discipline them. Again, at the end of it, he said, shall I come with a rod? Or shall I come in a spirit of gentleness? Paul was the spiritual papa, and he had been given the right, he had reserved the right by the power that was given to him and the authority by Christ Jesus to discipline his children. You see that? So what does that have to do with an eternal perspective. Go back up to verse 5. Look at what it says. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord, what? Comes. Who will bring both to light the things hidden in the darkness 
and disclose the motives of men's hearts, that each man's praise will come from him. You see, we have a spiritual papa who's reserved the right not only to discipline us, because in Hebrews it talks about those whom the, God, um, the Lord loves. He what? He disciplines, he chases. But he's also reserved the right, and rightfully so, because he's the great judge, to judge us. And he talks about judging the intents, if you will, the motives of our heart. Not just what we've done. The intention of your heart. And so in keeping that thought in mind, keeping an eternal perspective, keeping what Colossians talks about, set your mind upon those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand, then that helps me live just a little bit different. I may not want to take off on somebody if I'm remembered. Hey, man, I got an answer to that when the Lord comes. Amen? I don't want to do that. Go to last place, Hebrews 4.12. Yeah, he's going to take a look at what we, what we do, but more intently. The Lord doesn't look at the outside so much as he looks at the, the heart. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You want to live your life so that your motives are pure and clean? Live them according to the word of God. That's what it says. God, should I be doing this? It's amazing to me how people will ask questions that have to do with how close can I get this? Is this sin? Can I do this? Is this sin? As opposed to, you know what, I don't want to have any part of it. How can I live my life in such a way that I'm living more holy before God? All you got to do is live according to the word of God. God's word will instruct you and teach you. You want to have your motives right? Keep a heavenly perspective, realizing that the Lord is returning. Will he find true faith? He asked that question when he was here. Family, will he find true faith? His word will help us judge our intentions, and then we can live harmoniously, not only in the house of God, but as a family of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that as your word instructed us, it's, it's very important, Lord, for for us to, to be like-minded, to be on one accord, to be in agreement, Lord, with how to live our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us the wisdom, your word, and how to do that so that we don't have to, as the scriptures say, grope in darkness as one who does not know. But, Lord, you've given us the blueprint to help build a great and mighty church. And, Father, it's my prayer. It's indeed my prayer. Calvary Chapel, Irmo. Lord, that you would pour out your spirit. God, that you would create in each and every one that is here a sense of unity and togetherness, a, a fam familiar love, Lord God, for one another that will stand the test of time and all that the enemy desires to come against it. Praying for Pastor David and Irene and family, Lord God, that you would surround them with angels and a hedge of protection round about them. 
to keep them safe, Lord, as they further the work of your kingdom and all the saints that you called here, Lord God, that they would be fruitful, multiplying, Lord God, allowing just a great work to happen here. Lord, this is the South, the Bible Belt. But many don't know you, Lord God. And we pray that you would use this ministry as an outreach of your grace, your mercy, and your love, Lord. Keeping in mind, Lord, that we need to remember who we are in you. And Father, we need to live by your word. And Lord God, we need to stay humble before you. And then finally, Lord God, help us to keep that heavenly perspective that one day you will return. And Father, we want to rejoice in that, Lord. Receiving our crowns, Lord, that one day we can cast them all at your feet. Bringing you praise, honor, and glory. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Jesus paid it all. 
Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the teaching, God. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you paid it all.
Heavenly Father, be with us this week, Lord, and help us, Lord God, to focus the lenses of our hearts towards you, God, and to live not just this week, but all of our lives, Lord, for your glory, and to stay humble through it all, God, and to trust in you and to be in your word always, Lord. We love you and we praise you. Amen.